And uh, we have the privilege this morning of having the preacher with a capital P, Marco Ricardo, to come up here. Um, and you know, whenever one of us preach, uh, one of us on the preaching team preach, he always gets someone to pray for him, but no one ever prays for him. So this morning, I'd just like to pray for him. Is that all right? Thank you, Ryan. Here we go. Thank you, Lord, for this man. Thank mm. you for the word that you've mm. placed on his heart, to continue to place on his heart. Mm. Thank you for how he's leading us through the book of Galatians. Mm. I pray this morning, Lord, you would bless him, you would speak through him, your word would be powerful and effective mm. for salvation this morning, as it always is. Mm. And uh, yeah, just thank you for we anticipation of what you'll do this morning Amen. in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Well, uh, preacher with a capital P, eh? That's, uh, that's the first. I've never had that one before. Uh, no one has a sense of humor in this church. <laughs> and uh, that's okay. Oh, oh, love. That's, that's, now you just, what did you say? Uh, okay, I'm never going to live that one down. So before I get started today, I do want to just uh, ask us all, this morning I got an email from friends of mine who are in Israel. Um, they are part of the Foundation of Israel-Related Ministries. I'm sure everyone is quite aware of what's happening in Israel, uh, how there was this unprecedented attack and ultimately the nation's at war. Uh, I know that God has a special plan for Israel. He has many people in His heart there that live in Israel, and there are many people that are right now trying to see God's Word be preached. And so can I be asking us as a church to be praying for Israel, praying for, A, it's a horrible place to be in in terms of war, so be praying for people's safety, be praying that even in this time where uh, all this crazy stuff is going on, God will manifest Himself in a way that He would reveal His Son to people. And please be praying for the people that are right now amidst rocket and barrages going out and preaching the gospel. You know, something that was raised in our prayer meeting this morning, which was quite interesting, is that fear can be our friend. You know, fear helps us to avoid getting into trouble. And sometimes when people are fearful, their eyes are open to see things in ways they haven't seen before. And so can we ask the Lord to do something miraculous in this time? So please be praying for the nation. We know that as we read the Bible, we see the signs of the times are these things, wars and rumors of wars and things that get crazy. We also know that that area has been contended for thousands and thousands of years. And so what we're seeing is a whole lot of stuff play out. And so they need our prayers. Be praying for them. Be thinking about them and be praying for every single person. Tim has family there as well. So be praying for Tim and his family that are uh, now in Israel. And we just really are trusting that God is going to do something through all of this that will glorify Jesus. Amen. So I do also want to say something else. I think Ryan called me a preacher with a capital P because last week I got some things horribly wrong. Uh, and I was actually just testing everyone here to see if you'd pick it up. Nobody did except Ryan, the critic. Uh, and so anyway, but I, do, uh, I don't ever want to say things that are not true. And, and so I just want to correct a couple of mistakes that I made last week. If you're a visitor here, this is what we do in this church. We just correct stuff all the time. Uh, as Ryan said, you just find people that know what they're doing. And you'll see that nobody knows what they're doing here. So just come to DNA. It'll be amazing. I'm just kidding. Um, so what did I say last week that was wrong? I was excited and trying to preach God's Word. And in the moment, I think that I was speaking about in that particular context how Barnabas went and found Saul of Tarsus to bring him to Antioch to preach the gospel with him. And I said he probably heard about how Paul preached in Acts chapter 9. And then I think I went into a diatribe about how Paul ultimately, Acts didn't exist because Paul hadn't wrote, written the book of Acts yet. Paul never wrote Acts. 
uh, Luke wrote Acts, and so I'm sorry if I confused you, and I'm sorry if I disappointed you, but Paul didn't write the book of Acts, Luke did, and I did know that. I don't know why I said that. And I think also in that whole sort of exchange, uh, in that moment while I was talking about all that stuff, I think I may have said that Paul was divine. Um, Paul is not divine. He, he was under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so those two issues, I've put them out there and I said I'm sorry for all my critics online. Uh, and I do want to ask for your forgiveness. If you would, please allow me back here next week. I'd appreciate it. If you, if you don't want me to come back, I won't come back either. That's okay. You know, Charlie's here. You guys will be amazing with Mark and all the rest of the guys. I'm just kidding. Anyway. No, I'm not kidding. You will be amazing with them. I'm just saying I will be back. Okay. Anyway. Yes, I'm going to start my timer today and before I start another diatribe and get a whole lot of other things wrong. So I, I want to just maybe start off this morning by saying to you that I, I woke up today in a bit of a funk. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but you, you sort of wake up and it just feels like something's not right, you know, and that's sort of the way I woke up and I was preparing and trying to write this message and I'd written it already and I was trying to go through this message. And I just want to be vulnerable with you. I'm not sure what God wants to do today, but I do know this, that whatever He wants to do, I'm hoping that He'll be able to use me in the mess that I'm in, because today has really been a struggle for me. I'm not asking for anybody to have any pity for me either. I'm just putting it out there because a lot of what I thought I would say, I've changed. And sometimes that's a good thing uh, because you know, God's spoken, but sometimes it's based out of our own insecurities or inadequacies. And so I'm trusting that it isn't that today. But let me recap where we're at this morning. Last week, we started our series in the book of Galatians. And what we covered was the first sort of nine verses, not sort of, the first nine verses. In those nine verses, Paul lays out the tone and essentially the outline of what we can expect to find throughout the rest of the book of Galatians. In terms of the tone, what we understand from Paul is that he was quite angry. Uh, he's mad, right, with the Galatian church. And the reason he's mad is that these young in faith believers who had only been believers probably for two or three years at this point and whose church was still, you know, a baby church had allowed themselves in two short years to become deceived. And he says this in Galatians 1 and verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And so he uses this term, different gospel. Later on, he goes on to say, and he corrects himself, not corrects, but he sort of plays a little bit of a, he has a play on words. He says, not that there is another gospel, but there is this notion that there is a different gospel. And there are many different gospels in the world that we live in today. In terms of what Paul was dealing with, he was dealing with a sect of people that had come and invaded the church, a group called the Judaizers, who just for explanation purposes, were a group of people who taught others that in order to follow a Jewish Messiah, they needed to become more Jewish in their culture, their heritage, and in the way they behaved. And what they'd done in teaching people this is they'd taken a very simple message. The message of the gospel is simple. It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. He's all-encompassing. What he did is perfect, and it is final. And what they'd added to that was that for your faith to be authentic, while Jesus was a great start, you needed to add things to your faith, works, religious acts in particular, and in their case, following, 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 that's a new word, following Jewish laws and customs. Yes, told you I was in a funk. And so Paul's mad, right? He's mad because what starts off as grace, what starts off as a gift of God's grace has now turned into a product of one's own ability. It's turned into works. 
And then in terms of the outline, because of what's going on in the church, Paul's got three main things that he's going to cover in the book of Galatians, and we spoke about them last week. The first is his authority as an apostle, and we're going to talk a bit about that today. In fact, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Paul's authority. He speaks about guilt, and in particular, how the gospel is the only thing that can free us from condemnation and guilt. If you are feeling condemned this morning and or guilty, I want to tell you that you're not going to find solace in anything else but the message of the cross. There is nothing in this world that can free you from guilt. There is only a person who can free you from guilt, and his name is Jesus. And then he's going to speak much later on in Galatians about godliness how we are saved by grace and we live in grace, but that the grace in our lives produces a heart that wants to honor and love and just love on people and ultimately show the fruit that grace has generated in us. And that brings us to today, where we're going to pick up the letter of Galatians. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. And over the next two Sundays, we're going to cover 14 verses. I'm mentioning that to you this morning because these next 14 verses really are a little bit about Paul. We're going to look at Paul's testimony. And I want to encourage you, when you read Paul's testimony or you read these verses, in comparison to everything else that Paul says of magnitude in the book of Galatians, you might be tempted to think that there's not really much to say. Honestly, when I was preparing this message, I was like, gosh, Lord, what am I going to say? I mean, I'm talking about Paul and he talks about himself. What more can I add to what Paul has to say about himself, right? Yeah. Not much. Yeah. Yes, thanks, love. Thank you. Anyway, Catherine says there's lots. She's the theologian in our house. But I do want to say this to you, that there is a lot of depth in these verses because what you'll find in five short verses that we can easily gloss over, just like we would normally gloss over the introduction to any letter in any of the books of the Bible, is you'll find deep biblical truth. And more importantly, and something that will become the title or the overarching theme for the next two Sundays, is you, what you will find in Paul's words is a reminder that all of us in this room and every single believer across the world, uh, across every single nation, are beneficiaries of something so amazing. And that is God's amazing grace. So turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 10 onwards. But let's pray before we do. Although Ryan did pray for me, so now I'm double praying. It's going to be power today. Lord, I submit this word to you, Lord, the preaching of it, Lord. Uh, you know, Lord, that it's been a struggle for me today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make up in my flesh what I'm, in fact, take all the flesh away. And just let your spirit be present today. I pray that you would move mightily in our midst and that these words, Lord, would bring revelation and life to us today. That we would be reminded of this beautiful thing called your amazing grace that I'm reminded of right now, Lord, that I owe everything I have in my life to you, Lord. And so I'm so grateful. And I pray that that would be the heart, Lord, that we feel today. Holy Spirit, come and move amongst us in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul starts off this letter or this next se section and he says this. Am I now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? I want to end with that first question. Am I trying to find the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? So Paul's asking a simple thing. Whose approval does he want in his life? We know what he said in the first nine verses, how he started to unpack what he's going to say. He said some pretty interesting things in those nine verses, like, I can't believe you've fallen for another gospel, not that there is another gospel. And then he's saying, but whose approval do you actually think I'm after? 
Now you might be wondering, why is it that Paul would ask such a question? Why is he asking it now? He asks this question in context because what the Judaizers had done is made the Galatian church believe that what Paul was doing is creating another gospel, a watered-down version of the gospel, an easy-to-understand and easy-to-receive version of the gospel for people that weren't Jewish. In other words, he was creating a new gospel for Gentiles. One could say that they were almost insinuating that Paul wanted to curry favor with the Gentiles, that he was giving them this, this really simple version of Christianity, that they didn't really have to do much, but they could just buy into. Why? Because he wanted the Galatian people, I mean, not the Galatian, the Gentile people to like Paul, to want to be more like him. I don't know, to accept him. And so Paul makes himself clear in the second half of verse 10. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not, underline that word, not be a servant of Christ. Brings us to our first point for this morning, and that is this, being a beneficiary of God's amazing grace should cause all of us as believers to live for an audience of one. I want to ask us all a question this morning, and I'm not trying to put anyone in any sorts of condemnation, but who are you today trying to please? We're all trying to please someone generally. If you're married, you probably want to please your spouse. Sometimes if we have children, we want to please our children, right? I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll be angry with my children and they'll do something wrong and I'll discipline them. And then all of a sudden I feel like I need to please them afterwards because I feel guilty for disciplining them. I know I'm a complicated human being, right? I know nobody else has ever done that. (laughs) Maybe you're here and you're trying to please your friends. Maybe you're here and you're trying to please people that don't like you and you want them to start liking you. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel the pressure to please the culture around you. Maybe you're trying to please your neighbors. Maybe you're trying to please your boss. Maybe you're trying to please leaders in the church so that they will see you and hopefully elevate you into some position of authority. Or can you this morning confidently say, like Paul, that you are living for an audience of one person? And if you want to know who that one person is, it's none other than Jesus, right? I honestly wish I could say, and I'm pretty ashamed to admit this, but for many years, maybe a lot of my life as a believer, I have honestly not lived for an audience of one. A lot of times as a believer, I've lived for other people. I have worried about what other people think about me. If I'm honest, I've worried about what people in this church think about me. I've been worried about it at times even more then I've been worried about what God's opinion is of me. But Paul says something interesting. He says, if you live, or if he had lived to please man, he would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty definitive statement. Can you understand what Paul's saying? He's saying that you can either live for the pleasure of God or you can live for the pleasure of man. You cannot do both. You can please God or please man. You cannot do both of them simultaneously. It's either one or it is the other. And if we can't do both as individuals, then can I say this, that the church cannot live to please God and please man at the same time. You know, I say this quite often, and I'm not speaking about everybody else out there. I'm speaking about us in the collective church here. But I think that a lot of the mess that we find in the church today is as a result of the church wanting to please man instead of pleasing God. 
We live in a culture that wants us to bow down to it, friends. And unfortunately, to a large extent, the church has in some senses caved in. We've caved in because we want to be more attractive to the world around us, thinking that if we can make ourselves look better and be more appealing to people, then more people will come and more people will get saved. But it's a vicious circle because the more appealing we become, the more we lose sight of who God is. And because we're actually pleasing man, we're no longer pleasing God. And so the anointing no longer is with us. And so then what ends up happening is we start preaching from our flesh. And then what happens is before long, we look back and think, how did we get to the place that we're in? The church has wanted to be more welcoming. It wants to be more tolerant. It wants to be more accepting of a culture that has for all intents and purposes lost its mind. And in that process, the fundamentals of scripture are being washed away. Sometimes scripture is being forgotten about entirely, or in some cases it's being adapted to suit whatever the, 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 the desires of the culture for the moment. You know, I just look at the church and I get mad. And maybe that's why I'm in this funk today because I'm just, I'm burdened, friends. I'm burdened today with all of this stuff. I don't know what it is, but I'm telling you now, I look around us and I look at the way we treat each other as believers. I was speaking to somebody this morning who said, how is it possible that we as Christians treat each other worse than unbelievers treat us? And it's a product, friends, of us wanting to please man, not please God. And so we treat each other like dirt every day. We look at a church that's divided over every single issue. We look at a church that can't even make up its mind around same-sex marriage. For Pete's sakes, there are denominations in this nation and the world that are divided right now. They are splitting down the middle because some people, the minority say, we should allow people to marry in the same sex and everybody else is saying, but that's not in scripture. But they're saying, we don't care, we're gonna do it anyway. And you know, to a large extent, we all just go along with it. We see churches divided over the issue of gender in the modern world. There is no more churches or there are many churches that won't even talk about gender anymore because what is gender and what is a woman? What is a man? Nobody even knows anymore. I know what a woman is. I know what a man is. Okay, my children, please God, know what they are. But churches won't talk about it from the pulpit anymore. Why? Because we want to please man now and we're not pleasing God. We've got churches that won't talk about hell anymore and we think that that's so loving, man. We never one's gonna go to heaven. God loves everyone, he is love. Jesus was just making a statement on the cross and we think that that's how we love people. Man, let me tell you, when they are in hell, they're gonna say, why didn't you love me better? Amen. You know, this past week, uh, Catherine and I got invited to a function for an organization called Trotter's House. It's a pregnancy resource center that started in Austin, 500 of them across the nation at the moment. And they said something that really just shocked me and blew my mind. I mean, the first thing that they said was, don't think that because your child is born in a Christian home, that abortion will never be on their mind. That was like, wow, that's interesting. You know, you, you do, you think about it, wow, that you think well, if they're Christian and we're Christian, they should know better, but you know what, the truth is, it affects everyone. But Texas has got pretty severe laws around abortion today, right? Well, you know what these abortion clinics are doing now? They're advertising online now and they're inviting people to have abortion vacations where they will fly you out of the state of Texas to another state so that you can go have your abortion and they'll put you up in a hotel and maybe even send you to Universal Studios. I mean, have we gotten to this place in the world and what is the church saying about it? 
In Texas, they're busy promoting medical abortions now because you can buy pills that will be shipped to you from other nations in this world to your house in Texas, and you can take a tablet that will not only kill your baby, but then force you to go and labor so you can pass your child over the toilet, and they say, please don't look in the toilet, rather just flush. But you know, the church doesn't talk about the sanctity of life anymore. The church forgot that Psalm 139 says that not only were we formed in our parents' womb, but that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made by a creator with a purpose, for a purpose, designed by him. We don't talk about stuff like that. Why? Because we're so interested in pleasing people that we've forgotten about all of this important stuff and I'm tired of it, friends, and I don't want to do that anymore. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. When we are scared of people, And please, just don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we're not called to love the people in the city. We are. Doesn't matter how they identify and what gender, they are lost, friends. Our job is to bring the gospel, the light, the truth. But when we are, where we are called to hold each other to account is when we're in the church. I'm speaking to the church today. I'm not judging the world. I'm judging us and not even judging. I'm bringing correction to all of our hearts, to my own heart too. But the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. In other words, it's a trap. The moment you try and please man, you will always end up in the bottom of a ditch. It will never end up well. But then it goes on to say, but whoever whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Do you know that the fear of man is the opposite of the fear of God? It's diametrically opposed. The fear of God is not about being frightened of God. People say, but how can we have the fear of God? My God is loving, I can't fear Him. Don't tell me that there is a thing called the fear of God. There is a thing called the fear of God. It is the wonder, the awe, the amazement of standing before the Creator God of the universe. Let me tell you, friends, if you're not in shock when you see God, I don't know anything about you because you're not human. In fact, I don't even know what you'll be at that moment because you'll probably blow up. I can tell you now, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Not out of fright or out of fear in the sense that we are scared, like we're watching a horror movie. I don't watch horror movies. I do. I'm lying. No, I can't lie. <laughs> but that's not that fright. It's the awe, the amazement that God used to poke the universe into existence. The fear of man, on the other hand, refers to the fear of people or the particular fear of a person or a group of people that causes to elevate their importance and their agenda over everybody else's. It's a fear of people to the extent that we hold the people in awe, that we crave their approval and we fear their disapproval. And when that happens, you know what ends up happening to us as believers? Our desire to be accepted by those people causes us to worship them. And what we've done in one foul swoop is we've given them rights to parts of our heart that only God should ever have. It's called idolatry. The fear of man never ends up well for anyone in the Bible. It will never end up well for us. Saul lost his kingship. Old Testament Saul. King Saul lost his kingship. Why? Because he wanted to please his people. Samson wanted to please his girlfriend Delilah and he loses his anointing. Judas wants to please the religious leaders of the day and he loses his life. Why? because they were more scared and more worried about what people think. That's not Paul. Paul says, I'm not here to please man. I'm here to please God. I can't be a servant of pleasing people and a servant of God at the same time. I'm not here to make friends. I'm not here to win favor. I'm not here to make things easy for people. 
I'm here to tell you about the risen King Jesus. And if you don't like that, tough luck. Verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Being a beneficiary of God's amazing grace means that all of us in this room have to understand that the gospel is far too controversial to be a product of some human invention. It's way too controversial. What do I mean? Can you imagine if a human being made up the gospel? Well, I can tell you if somebody did make up the gospel, the Trinity, the fact that God the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but they are all one person, yet distinct three personalities would not be thought of by any human being. It's too complicated. I mean, I can't even explain the Trinity, right? The doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. The fact that God himself had to send his son to die for our sins so that he could give us his righteousness in exchange for our sin and paying the price for it would never have been made up by a human being. It wouldn't even cross our mind. What about the doctrine of God's grace? This is one that's going to get all of us this morning. The fact that the gospel message is available to the good and the bad. Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast, which tells us that the most reprehensible people in society, murderers, rapists, child molesters even, are not too far from the grace of God and may one day be in heaven. If it was made up by man, we would have said, no, heaven's not for those people. But the gospel says everyone is welcome on one condition, that you believe that what Jesus did for you on the cross was final, finished. You accept his sacrifice in exchange for your sins. I'll pay the price and give you my grace. If the doctrine of, or if the, if the gospel was made up by man, why would they come up with a virgin birth? I mean, that's pretty complicated to defend right from the beginning. The point I'm making is the gospel can't be made man-made. None of these doctrines are easy to defend or easy to explain. We would have ended up with something that was really palatable to the human mind, that was really pretty, that we could tie a neat little bow around it, that we could explain with our reasoning and with our logic, but we don't have that. Instead, what we have in these words of the Bible is a gospel that is controversial, a gospel that is a stumbling block, a gospel that is a rock of offense, a gospel that says no matter how good you are, you will never be good enough to get your salvation. And no matter how bad you are, you're never too far from God's grace. It's a gospel, friends, that cannot be understood logically. It will never be understood philosophically. It is one that needs to be believed by faith in the risen King who died for you on the cross, who paid the penalty for your sins, that you receive the finished work of the cross, that you know in that instant that you are loved, saved, and redeemed. That's the gospel message. Paul says, no man can make this up. I didn't make this up. This is of God. Verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Being a beneficiary of God's amazing grace means that we understand that God's amazing grace is received by revelation, not by information. He says, no one taught me the gospel. There wasn't a single individual that sat me down in a classroom and said, this is what the gospel is and you have to believe it. Some people even believe that Paul was like a mini sort of minor secondary apostle because he really was taught the gospel by the main apostles and so that's why the Galatians could discount what he said. He didn't even go to those apostles. He was not saved by those apostles. He didn't even meet those apostles for a long time. 
Paul was saved on a road to Damascus. It says this in Acts 9 verse 3. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, this is Paul, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. That's how Paul received the gospel. Now I get it. When we read these words, you think to yourself, okay, like you wrote three quarters of the New Testament from this? <laughs> like this moment in time? Honestly, I've been trying to study the Bible for years and I still don't even know what Paul knows. But like here on the road to Damascus, boom, that's it. Writing, writing, changing the world. And so I started to think about this this week. How can this seemingly short encounter with Jesus turn into three quarters of the New Testament? These three quarters, right, Ryan? Is that fact check? Is that okay? Was that okay? Oh, sorry. And so I started to think, and please don't build a theology out of this. I'm asking for some creative license here now. Okay, I'm just imagining. We can all imagine at times. Charlie's a wanderer. He imagines. He always does his crazy imagination stuff up here. So I'm going to try to be, I'm channeling Charlie right now. I started to think, but what, what happened? What happened at that moment? And then I started to wonder, perhaps in the moment when Paul encounters Jesus Christ and he sees the risen king and his eyes lock with the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end and the first and last, the line of the tribe of Judah, the rose of the, the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, and he starts to encounter these deep blue eyes. If they were blue, I don't know if they were blue. I haven't seen them. I'm imagining, remember, please don't like, throw stones yet. Perhaps in that instant, Jesus transfers an entire wealth of knowledge into Paul. Is that possible? Yes. Or perhaps Saul had scales on his eyes afterwards because what Jesus was doing was giving Paul supernatural revelation from that moment onwards. What I don't know happened, while I don't know what happened in exact detail, what I can tell you is this. After that encounter with Jesus, Paul tells us everything we need to know about doctrine. It's madness. I mean, a good madness. Paul knows exactly what he needs to tell the world. You see, when Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus that he was persecuting him, Paul was able to define the doctrine of us, the church, being Jesus' body. How amazing is that? When he was sent to the Gentiles, Paul knew that the gospel message wasn't meant to be shrouded or covered in some sort of Jewishness. It was actually a message that wasn't about Jewish culture. It was about a far more important culture, the kingdom culture. When the Holy Spirit filled Paul, a few days later, Paul created his entire doctrine of the Holy Spirit from experience and he could write to the Corinthian church and say, this is why you need the gifts of the Spirit and this is how you need to operate in them. After encountering Jesus, everything that Paul knew as a, stu as a student of the law, everything he knew from the law, from the Old Testament, finally clicked in place and he could say with no uncertain terms that we are justified not by our works, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I say all of this to you today because there's a danger in Christianity today. There is this danger that we have been led to believe, and I think as the world thinks it's become more intellectual, we think that the more we know about God, the more we will be able to minister for God. Or the more we know about God, the more qualified we will become to do the things that God has asked us to do. But I want to say to us this morning, knowing about God is very different to knowing God. Paul knew God. He knew Jesus. 
He saw Jesus. And if Paul is our example, perhaps what we need more than information is revelation. When was the last time you asked God to reveal his glory to you? When was the last time you asked Jesus, or when was the last time I asked Jesus to show me more of who he was? Perhaps have we ever asked Jesus to show up in our lives in tangible, physical form? Lord, show me more of yourself. I honestly believe that's why heaven is eternity because for the rest of eternity, all we'll ever see is different facets and aspects of God's divine nature. We will see Jesus in different lights. We will get to know him for the rest of eternity and we still would not have exhausted him. That's how awesome God is. It's only revelation, friends, that leads to transformation. If you want to see transformation in your life, you need revelation from God. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. We don't need information. We want more revelation, more glory in this church, Lord, more of your majesty in this church, more of your character in this church, more of your nature in this church. Show us how deep your love is, Lord, how your heart breaks for the lost. Show us, Lord, give us a heart that breaks just like yours. Verse 13. Paul changes tack now a little bit. He speaks about a little bit more sort of personal things about his own life. He says, for you've heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Do you know that as amazing as God's grace is, and this is our final point for today, it's so easily missed. What Paul describes in these two verses are ways that people all around us in this world are missing God's grace today. There are three things I want to highlight that Paul says. Firstly, traditions hinder people from encountering the amazing grace of God. Paul was a Judaizer, I mean a Jew, not a Judaizer. He says, you knew about my life. I was the Jew of Jews. I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. I was a student of the law. My parents were Jewish. I was brought up Jewish. If there's anyone with a more Jewish heritage, you tell me who he is, because I don't know. But what Paul is ultimately saying is my tradition made it impossible for me to look at anyone that was outside of my tradition and think that they could possibly be right. Not if you've ever had this experience in your own life. I have. I'll share a short testimony very quickly about my own life. So although I was born in South Africa, I was a first generation South African born to Italian immigrant parents. And so because they were Italian, I adopted this beautiful Italian heritage, right? A beautiful Italian heritage and tradition. I have a real love for good food. I have a real love for shouting and speaking loudly like my parents do. Everyone thinks we're fighting all the time, but we're not. I speak with my hands, right? I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, and so I inherited all of these good things about my, my tradition from my parents. But of course, because my parents were Italian, I also inherited a religion. I inherited, I inherited Catholicism from my parents. I was born into Catholic family from Catholic parents because every Italian that I knew at that point was Catholic. And so I did my first Holy Communion. Well, I did catechisms before that. Then I did my confirmation much later on. What's interesting about tradition though is neither of my parents, even though they were Catholic, believed that God existed. So you tell me how that works. They didn't have any relationship with God. In fact, no, they did believe he existed. They were self-proclaimed agnostics. But I needed to become Catholic because they were Catholic and every Italian before them that they knew had become Catholic. That's what tradition does. We just keep following the same things, right? We do all of this stuff. There was no reality to my Catholicism. There was no life to it. There was no relationship with God. 
But then all of a sudden, when I was 19 years old, and I'd made some seriously bad life choices, not at 19, much earlier on in my life, and was sent to rehab for the fourth time for severe drug addiction, the challenge was that this program that I went to was a faith-based program. But it wasn't a Catholic program, it was a charismatic, Christian, non-denominational church program. And I still remember this as if it was yesterday, walking into my first non-denominational, charismatic, Christian church service. I remember it. I mean, I was shocked. I was like, how do people even do this in church? But what was amazing for me is I all of a sudden became a very devout Catholic in an instant. I was like offended, man. I was like, these people don't even know God. How can they raise their hands? I mean, these people are speaking in tongues. What is this? These are devil worshippers. This is not the God that I serve. I've never even been to church. These are not the people that I know. They definitely can't be Christian. The point I'm making is that my traditions, my heritage got in the way of me seeing the gospel for what it truly was. I thank the Lord that he broke into my life like he did with Paul and it can be broken into and he gave me a revelation of his son. But for many people, they can't break out of tradition. The second thing we see from Paul's life is that prejudice hinders us from faith. Paul says that I persecuted God's church. I tried to destroy it. Why? Because they were different to me. They said things that offended my tradition, my culture, my heritage. And so I wanted to kill every single Christian. He was blinded by his rage, friends. He didn't even stop to think perhaps what they believe is true. He was like, no ways, can't be, never going to happen. You're going to die. And Stephen did. But we see it in today's world. I don't know if you've noticed, there's a lot of rage in this world. Man, I don't know. There are some people, I can tell you today, that if you tell them that this Bible is 100% true, that it is the infallible Word of God, a direct revelation from heaven to the apostles who wrote this Bible, they will start screaming and pulling their hair out. I've seen it. They'll say that you are nothing more than an old-fashioned religious bigot if you believe the Bible to be true. Prejudice affects the reception of God's amazing grace. But God can break through prejudice too. He did it for Paul. He can do it for everyone else. And then lastly, selfish ambition hinders people from coming to faith. Paul says, I advanced in Judaism beyond my contemporaries. If you had to put that in today's language, Paul's saying that I was too busy building my career to be bothered with anything else. I wanted to be the best Jew there ever was, the most uh, skilled Jew, the most argumentative Jew, the Jew of Jews. In fact, that's what he calls himself later on in some of his epistles. And we see this today, especially in America, right? And I'm American, so don't get offended by my South African accent. Everyone's chasing the American dream, right? We've got the, and it's a beautiful dream, right? That you can live a life, you can create your own destiny, that it doesn't matter where you come from, you can build a future. But the problem is, along the way, the American dream has become a little bit warped and it's become a little bit weird. And all we're doing now is just chasing the Joneses, right? We're all about keeping up with society. And so we put our kids into more sports. We do more things. We do more of that. We work harder. We work longer. Why? Because we want to live up to this beautiful ideal of comfort and this comfortable life that we can create for ourselves and have everything that everybody else says is success. But when we do that, we realize we don't have any time for anything else and so gospel messages get lost they go right past us remember we read the book of revelations there was somebody called Babylon remember that 
That's what Babylon is. Babylon is the love of this world. It's the love of the things of this world. It's the, it's the lure and the seduction that this world provides, saying, forget about everything else. Just come and follow me. Just be the person that I say you can be. Get rich, get wealthy, get healthy, do all of the cool stuff, and you can have everything. The problem is when we commit our lives to that, we leave no time to think about matters of eternal consequence. But God, right? Because Jesus did it for Paul. He reached into his life. He took him on the road to Damascus. And so he can do it for anyone else. But that's a huge distraction in our modern world. You can see the bands up here, so I'm going to close. <laughs> Just kidding. I told them to come up. Or, I mean, I told them when to come up. In these five verses that we've just read, Paul gives us some interesting glimpses into his life. And we're going to continue to see a little bit more about Paul's life next week. But I want to ask us the question, why do you think Paul found it necessary or finds it necessary to tell the Galatians all of this stuff? Yes, Paul's trying to establish his authority as an apostle, that Jesus himself gave him his commission. Some people in those circles still believe that Paul was a danger, that he wanted to kill Christians. And so perhaps Paul is also just letting everyone know I'm on your side. I'm with you in this battle. But I think there's a far more important and critical reason why Paul shares what he shares. I honestly believe Paul knew that he was an example of the gospel that he was so passionate about preaching. He was an example. He knew that the only reason he could ever pen the words to the Galatian church in the first place was because of one simple truth. It wasn't because he was awesome. It wasn't because he was studied or well-versed in the Old Testament. It wasn't because he looked good. It wasn't because he had money. It wasn't because he came from wherever he came from, Tarsus. It wasn't because he was fit and healthy. It wasn't because he deserved it. The only reason Paul knew that he could write to the Galatians in the way he was writing was because he understood one thing. He knew that he was a trophy of God's grace. If you're a believer here today, you're a trophy of God's grace. God's amazing grace. There was a guy who lived a long time ago. It's not Isaac Newton, just so you know. His name is John Newton. And he wrote a song. We all know this song, right? He was a blasphemer, a drunk, a slave trader who also encountered Jesus and who also became a trophy on God's mantelpiece. And he wrote these words. He said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Isn't that beautiful? When was the last time any one of us in this room fell to our knees and said, Lord, thank you for saving me. I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it, but Jesus did it. So I want us to celebrate that fact by singing the song together as we close. And if you're here today and you don't know who Jesus is, maybe something of what's been said here has captured your heart. I want to say, just know this. It wasn't my preaching. It was the Father drawing you in. It was the Holy Spirit witnessing with you. God has broken into your life. And perhaps as we sing the song, you might have your own radical encounter with Jesus today. And maybe you're right about it too. But let's stand up and let's celebrate God's amazing grace. And let's sing this song. And let's thank God for the finished work of the cross.